Radio Land, Podcast Bill, and all the ships at sea. My name is Kate Wolf, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. Joining me today is my co-host, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB. Hi, Eric. How's it going? It's going pretty well. It's hot in Los Angeles oh, this yeah. week. Oh, yeah. I think it's just going to be like this from now on, unfortunately. <sighs> And on the show this week, we have our editor, Janice Rochelle Littlejohn, speaking with Peter J. Harris about his new play, The Johnson Chronicles. Oh, that's really exciting. I've heard great things about that play. Yes, yes. I've been hearing about it a bit myself, and I'm, I'm curious to learn more. Yeah, so, can't wait to hear that conversation. Let's listen to it right now. All right. Okay. This is Janice Rochelle Littlejohn, Senior Editor for Women, Culture, and Media for Los Angeles Review of Books. Today, we welcome Peter J. Harris, a writer, producer, publisher, broadcaster, and founding director of the Black Man of Happiness Project, a creative, intellectual, and artistic exploration of Black men and joy. He is the recipient of the 2015 American Book Award and has twice received the Penn Oakland Josephine Miles Award in 2015 and 1993. He's here to talk about a provocative work he's staging at the Matrix Theater on Melrose, July 21st through August 7th, entitled The Johnson Chronicles, Truth and Tall Tales About My Penis. Thanks for joining us today, Peter. (laughs) Glad to be here. Thank you. Well, let's jump right into this. The Johnson Chronicles is defined as a body memoir in the spirit of the vagina monologues that delves into sex and intimacy, fatherhood and vasectomy, and the pleasure and pain that Black men have with their personal, political, and mythological Johnson. First of all, for those who might not understand the euphemism, the Johnson, where does this term come from? Oh, when I was writing the book, I found a reference. I think it's an English term, actually, from literally from England, but definitely Southeast D.C. as far as I'm concerned, because that's where I first started hearing it. When I was growing up, Johnson was literally the all-purpose euphemism for the male sex organ. Okay, it was and it was always big, of course, which is part of the mythology that I think uh, we're playing with with the Chronicles this notion that whether it's Richard Pryor talking about the two dudes on the Golden Gate Bridge and one guy says, I gotta go to the bathroom and he says, mm, this water's cold. And his boy says, yeah, and it's deep too. So from <laughs> that type of folkloric, you know, description of the Johnson as this huge thing to prowess, sexual prowess, there's, there's really not a lot of room for real human a human relationship, an intimate relationship between a sort of average black man and his average Johnson. And that's at the core of the book and the play that I'm really quite proud about. Now, you mentioned that it was first a book. And mm-hmm. I know when we first met about five, six years ago, I read parts of it, understanding it mm-hmm. to be a book. What happened to the book and why now a play or mm-hmm, adaptation mm-hmm. to a play? The second edition of the book is out. It's, I mean, it's technically out, but because we're focusing in a laser way on the play, we'll have it available 
during the run of the theater piece. The theater piece is sharply shorter and focused versus the book. The book is kind of rambly. It has plenty of truths and tall tales, which <laughs> is, you know. And so the tone of the book is much more of a coming through the spirit of a raconteur where you're trying to really just kind of flow with the ideas behind the Johnson, including deep, deep meditations about what I call the mythological Johnson. This is the thing that's grounded in history. But if you peel away some of that history, you go all the way back to imperialism and European imperialism, enslavements of Africans by everybody from Muslims in the, you know, before the Atlantic slave trade. And at the heart of a lot of that was outsiders viewing the penis or the member, they used to call it in the old days, the member is so much larger. It's so giant. Oh my God, it's a machine. It's more comparable to a donkey than a human being. Mm. And so these myths, this whole idea of what's big and what's, you know, it's always initially used to dehumanize folks. And of course, over the years, for one reason or another, you know, we claim that myth. And of course, I like to say there's nothing funnier than a good Big Johnson joke. Just like there's nothing funnier than a good Yo Mama joke. <laughs> but when you kind of peel it away for the meditation at the heart of the Chronicles, a book and theater, you can't rest on the surface, which a joke can do. And so what I'm excited about is the opportunity to let Terrell Tilford, at least in the stage version, just kind of really sink into some of the spaces around myth, around the bravado, mm -hmm. and sneak in a kind of a simple intimacy so that our audience members can really imagine they're actually just having a really simple conversation with a regular dude about his simple Johnson. That's the core of what we're trying to do. I want to talk about Terrell in a minute, mm -hmm. but I wanted to go back to talk about the political kind of overtones mm -hmm. of the black body yeah. and this member. Why do you feel that right now is a good time to stage such a play or have such a conversation when we're all talking about Black Lives Matter and what is happening with Black men and police officers and things like that. And now you're bringing this other dynamic with talking about the male member because the Black body tends to be sexualized in a lot of ways. Absolutely. And so I was wondering, talk about bringing this project into existence on stage in this particular climate and mm -hmm, what that mm -hmm. means for you. You think about, let's look, for example, at the, what the officer in Ferguson says that Michael Brown was a demon. The idea that a cop would roll up on a Tamir Rice, for example, 12-year-old boy with a toy gun. Here's a dude behind bulletproof glass. Oh, he's in a car. All he has to do is ride up on the young man, turn on his little light thing, grab his microphone and his PA system and say, young man, what are you doing? Little boy, what are you doing? Drop the gun. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have to jump out of the car with guns blazing. So my point is what they're looking at are mythological constructions. These are not human beings they're looking at. And despite the creative and negative tensions about how do you train police officers, when the depth of descriptions about African-American men in particular, women have their own sets of mythologies around their bodies, no doubt about it. And that's not an either-or thing by any means. But for men, for black men, 
it doesn't matter. I'm a light-skinned dude, you know, so it doesn't matter. I mean, you know, I've seen an ad that Thomas Jefferson wrote in the 18th century, you know, chasing down a mulatto named Sandy who ran away. So there's no house versus field energies. I'm talking about the way that this myth of who we are gets played out is that if someone has power in the form of a gun, jobs, economics, etc., without their hard work to break the circuit of white supremacist definitions of black men, they see these black men as animals, as less than human, as expendable. And that's what we're seeing. I make the case, frankly, that the African-American male voice is the most eloquent voice as an entertainment commodity. Can you elaborate on that? I'm saying, yeah, you can just look at the billion-dollar hip-hop industry as an illustration. Okay. The African-American personal voice, the intimate voice, the distinctive voice, the unique individual voice of me as an individual dude, as the men who've been cut down, what did they really think about happiness? What did they think about sex? When they were sitting around in their most safe moments with their boys or with whoever they trust, an uncle or, you know, an auntie or somebody, and it just got clean and said, you know, I just want, you know, I'm scared. I don't really know what it is to, I don't even know where the sex is. I'm getting ready to have my first sex. I don't even know where the vagina is. We don't get to that, which is what we're trying to do with the Chronicles. And frankly, with the Happiness Project, Mm -hmm. you know, with my whole body of work, it's about exploring the individuality of African-American men. Now, I write about all kinds of stuff, but that's my calling right now. That's the thing that I feel that that work is what we need to break circuits. And I'm not at all worried about saying this as well. Even in our own briar patch, our own community, when we hurt each other, we're still seeing each other as something other than just our brother, for example. We see through the lens of color, for example. We see through the lens of the other You know, I mean, whether you go to the continent, you know, in Rwanda, folks were being called cockroaches. Mm -hmm. You know, if you go to Europe, you see what happened in that phase during the 40s. I mean, come on. The thing I'm trying to make is that whenever you want to dehumanize and in order to victimize people on any kind of mass scale of impunity, which is what we're seeing now in so many ways, you have to dehumanize the person first. And for a piece like the Chronicles, It's infused with a deep humanity. Mm -hmm. It's infused with a sense of intimacy. And we take the time to get loud, but also we take the time to get really quiet. That's what a whole human being does. How has the piece changed from when you first looked at it as a book? What was going on with you at the time when you started writing the Johnson Chronicles? And how is it? now lasted this long to transfer into or be adapted into a play form? I mean, what was it then? And is it something new now or is it something different now? It is. When I first started, I was actually in a staged reading of the Vagina Monologues with a friend of mine. And I was enjoying, I had already read the book and a friend said, let's go and check out the, she said, would you go with me to see? I said, you better believe it. And I did go. And I remember just as we were waiting, just sort of smiling and saying, wow, look at all these folks. And it was mostly women, of course. And I said, you know, somebody need to write the Johnson Chronicle. (laughs) And it just smacked me upside the head. And of course, you know, Ensler, from what I understand, interviewed a ton of women and then 
created these composites. I had done a lot of work with men. I've done men's groups and all that, but I just frankly couldn't envision grabbing about 200 dudes and sitting around talking about Johnson. I just didn't see it happening. Mm -hmm. I can, generally speaking, get dudes to talk about almost anything. Mm -hmm. You give me enough time. It's been my experience. I've known a lot of good men, and I've had a lot of great conversations. But anyways, when I wrote that first edition of the Johnson Chronicle, I just wanted it to be kind of truth. And the tall tales quality was really the thing that drove me. I wanted to have the same boldness of that Richard Pryor story on the Golden Gate Bridge. But underneath it, at the core, I also wanted to explore these myths. And so I stuck the silly, crazy stuff sort of around this core of the mythological Johnson. Mm -hmm. As we began, I knew I wanted to adapt it for stage. I just wanted to see men on stage just talking about these intimate subjects. And so we began to adapt it pretty quickly. I left it kind of long. And along the way, we did several readings. And what started to evolve through the readings is, one, I wasn't hearing the intonations. Actors would, they would change the grammar, for example. So black men, when we're around each other just flowing, we kind of blend our diction as we blend language. We can be formal and super philosophical at one minute, and the grammar is just straight out of, you know, a workbook. And then we'll sort of glide and slide, and the next thing you know, we're being and dropping all kinds of, you know, as my mom would say, don't say conversate. Well, that's what we'll be doing. <laughs> we'll be conversating when we're at our best. Mm -hmm. And so eventually I knew I was going to have to get more involved. I'm not an actor, so I knew I couldn't act it. But I knew eventually I would have to sort of take charge of it. And we got accepted. Initially, we got this particular version started. Is I got accepted at the D.C. Black Theater and Arts Festival back mm -hmm. in February of 2017. Okay. And something, it just didn't quite click and I couldn't go back to do it. And so Terrell was already up and ready and excited. And we decided, well, let's do it in LA. And he had been on the Matrix stage in a beautiful piece called Stick Fly. And uh, Joe Stern, the owner, was open to giving us a good deal. So I said, let's go. Let's, you know, I just rented the joint and now we're hustling it. The current edition of the book and its more refined or, you know, shorter adaptation actually does what an old producer friend of mine said. It has a little more blood on the page, is what she said. In other words, we're actually exploring some deeper issues about intimate violence in a family. Some of that is autobiographical. My daughter went through some painful stuff, criminal stuff with a former stepfather. And so we've figured out a way to infuse it without it being, you know, a self-indulgent memoir but also to find some principles around intimate violence as it relates to a man's relationship, healthy relationship with his Johnson. And so that's how it's different from the beginning to now. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. And now for this week's book recommendation. with Morgan Parker. She is the author of There Are More Beautiful Things Than Beyonce, a book of poems that was published by Tin House Books this year. And she has a book recommendation for us. Yes, so the book that I'm reading now and as of this morning was reading in the bathtub <laughs> okay. um, is called Nigger and it is the autobiography of Dick Gregory, the comic. And it's really good. It's actually got this wild momentum about the sentences and this kind of like shift in per perspective that 
I'm actually finding weirdly poetic. And it's funny, and it's sad, and it's like cliches sometimes, and I kind of like that. So who was Dick Gregory? What era is he from? He was performing in clubs where black people couldn't be that like kind of like Sammy Davis Jr. Okay. That so sort of segregated mm-hmm. time period. Wow. And and so that's a pretty incendiary title. Yeah. <laughs> so is that is the book have a political edge or absolutely. Okay. Yeah. He wrote a lot about segregation and talked a lot about Freedom rides and things like that. But oh, wow. can you imagine like a joke about freedom rides? Right, like, right. That is, that's what it is, and I, I can like get a kick out of that. Yeah. Stuff, so. Oh wow. So, yeah. so, so tell us the title of that book again. It's called Nigger. By Dick Gregory. Yes. Okay. Thank you so much, Maureen. That sounds really good. You're listening to LARB Radio Hour, and now back to Janice Rochelle Littlejohn's conversation with Peter J. Harris. You mentioned your daughter. I know that you work a lot with her. Talk about what she's helped influence beyond this painful uh, mm-hmm. chapter in her experience. How has she helped influence what you think about the Johnson Chronicles, about the Johnson, sure, and, sure. and about w- relationships with women? The simplest way is when she came, I call it when she, fa- I say when she found her public voice to tell me and her mom what she had endured with this masquerading stepfather, the first thing she said was, don't do anything. Because her mother, who's way more gangster than me, <laughs> uh, and also eight years older than me, was, okay. of course, she was livid, as was I. But actually, her first influence is that as the person victimized by this criminal, she had the first voice among all of our voice. And so she said, here are the ground rules, Dad. You're going to please. She was polite and tender, of course. But she says, basically... You ain't going to do nothing, but you're going to work with me and I need you now. And so any conditioning, any ego, any masculine intent, intentions to be get into revenge, etc., because I'm grown and I'm political and I was her father to the core, I said, okay, it's not going to be easy. Not that I was, again, not that I'm some gangster, but I'm about two degrees from some gangsters. <laughs> but I said to her, okay. You tell me what you need. Meanwhile, I was already cultivating the the Black Man of Happiness project and the chronicles and the happiness work and the poetry that uh, Luis Rodriguez and Tia Chucha published for me, Bless the Ashes. It's all about finding ease and rest in the midst of the storm. Mm -hmm. And there's no rougher storm than being told by your kid that a dude whose hand you shook, a man who basically masqueraded, and he was a predator of the highest order, finding out that that guy violated your daughter, and then your daughter saying, but don't do anything, but let's be father, let's be daughter. So that's her most profound influence on what I have done. The Chronicles, and she's the co-producer of this play, she knows everything that's in it. She knows that we have a, a sequence that includes an exploration of the impact of sexual uh, assault in a family setting. But my daughter is such a champion. She's, she's, she looked like she's five years old, but she's easily uh, past 30. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she is a cold-blooded champion, and she is saying, Pops, let's go for this. 
and we do other kinds of things together. We I we did a Q and A that helped her get her master's thesis, and three quarters of her thesis is me of her is her asking me questions and me asking her questions, and our answers intertwined about what happened after she was assaulted and how she survived and questions such as, well, why didn't you tell us? We weren't enemies at the time. She just was afraid. She was more afraid of her mom with whom she lived than she was with me doing anything because we lived separately but still were active. So she's influenced, the musicians would say, she's influenced the, t- the timbre of the book. Mm. There's a real sound to the Chronicles. It sounds like a round-the-way dude, just like I do. Mm-hmm. Because that's what I am. I'm a round-the-way dude who happened to go to Howard and study with really profound professors, but who came of age in the 70s and, and, and into the 80s when people like Lucille Clifton and other people were saying, our voice, as we sound on the ground, can be a voice of poetry, can be a voice of eloquence and elocution. It can be a the, 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 the sort of the main ingredient of a rue, as the Southern folks would mm-hmm. say, you know, for a real gumbo of, a, of an artistic voice. How challenging is it at this time and place to market a project like this to get to... <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> a black man uh, and happiness, a black right. man being I mean, intimate. Right. Listen, it's not easy. Nobody cares. I don't think. I mean, I, you know, we go back enough to the proposal for the Black Man of Happiness book that won the uh, subsequently won the American Book Award. Right. We had entree to editors. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you had entree. I had entree. Not only did they not say no, they never said anything. They literally went silent. There are books out called Black Pain. But the idea of a book about black men and joy, mm-hmm. uh, uh, frankly, if I didn't have self-esteem, I would think that I was a, a worthless human being. The silence that come that came that came echoing back at me. But I do have good self-esteem. Plus, I'm in the vineyard. You know, I have 20 plus years as a volunteer at the world stage, for example, here in LA. You know, my work has shown up. You know, you turn one page, there's Alice Walker. You turn the next page, there's me. You know, in in books edited by people like Terry McMillan and Charles Johnson, and and um, um, you know, Alice Walker's daughter, Rebecca Walker across the board. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you kind of get to the point where I am. I'm sort of a, you know, mid-level elder at this point. And basically, I do the work because the work is calling me to do. I don't do it to publish on some schedule. If somebody, you know, wants me to be on a schedule, that's fine. I'm a trained reporter from Howard University. There ain't a deadline I can't meet. But I'm not a marketer. My job is to create the beautiful work as best as I can create it. It's somebody else's job to market it. In the classic sense. Now, obviously, I got a kind of gorilla spirit, a maroon spirit. So in the case of the Chronicles at the Matrix, I'm wearing every hat you can wear in order to see if we can fill that those nine nights with 100 or so people okay. so that we can have a robust discussion about Johnson. Well, let's talk about actor Terrell Tilford. Brilliant um, man. He is uh, at, on Switched at Birth. He's got a recurring on that as well as uh, The Young and the Restless. And I first uh, saw him in uh, an indie film called In the Morning at the Pan-African Film Festival. And he's a wowzer. <laughs> <laughs> he is a handsome He's brother. a handsome dude. But I was wondering, you know, how, how did you guys get together and, and, and what does he bring to the project? Mm-hmm. And, and, oh, what and, a great question. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, first we met at the world stage many years. You know, in the nineties, there was a moment at the stage when like there was this kind of black Hollywood renaissance and a bunch of them came down to the stage for some reason, uh, Vanessa Williams or Sally Richardson, Mario Van Peebles, a whole crew of folks used to just come every Wednesday. Anyway. So Terrell, I'm, he was part of that team. And then he went off to MFA study at Rutgers. So many, many years ago, I've, we've been friends. He's a wonderful, he's a super smart dude. He's an art curator, art dealer, everything. But in this case, when we, when I said, I want to do this thing as a solo show, he was the first and only choice. Uh, I mean, we would have found somebody if he said no. I just knew he could get it. And actually, ironically, the first few readings, he was like, I don't get it. I was like, what do you mean you don't get it? And we had to do a lot of uh, uh, needing. I would finally say to him things like, you know how you invited me to your birthday one year and you and your brother and your boys were sitting around smoking cigars? That's what we're after. That That's the oscillation that we want. The way regular black men talk when they're at peace with each other and they just swapping lies. And that was one of the breakthroughs. Subsequently, as he has begun to now realize the stage at the Matrix is his, Oh, my God, he takes a line and turns it any which away but loose. I mean, he can go sexy. He can go indignant. He can go, uh, you know, declamatory. You know, he can he gets now the depth and the and it's so much fun to just, you know, rehearsal to me is like a writer's workshop. And so we have we I use my ear as much as anything. I'm not a visual person, so I can tell when it's clanging you know, when it's too long. And so we have really, really worked hard. And we've sacrificed some some chronicles to make the theater piece stand on its own. Okay. And a lot of that has to do with Terrell saying, well, one, bro, uh, it's really hard to do 90 minutes plus with no actors to play off. So look out for me. But mostly he says, you know, I can tell when it's clanging. And I said, okay. And I tell him all the time, I don't fall in love with my work. I'll cut a sentence. I'll cut a paragraph. I'll cut a whole chronicle mm-hmm. if it makes sense for the power that we're trying to tap. Mm-hmm. And boy, that's what we've been able to do. And I, it's a, it's, I'm in kind of awe. I mean, we had a rehearsal yesterday, literally, where I'll just say he just sat down in the chair because he was tired and then start reading one of the chronicles. And it, dog, it, it damn near made me cry what he was doing. And of course, now we saw it was an opportunity for us to really let it sing. It'll probably be, and we'll just have to encourage y'all to come on down and check it out. Well, there's so many things that I would love to talk to you about, but we're running out of time. Um, you've got a big summer coming up. You've got Amani Tolliver's uh, Runaway book coming out from mm. the World Stage Press. And there's uh, the Lamert Park Village Voices that's coming uh, out yes, from, right. you have a piece in that from mm-hmm. the I wrote the Harriet. forward to that book. Oh, yeah. okay. For, I got a couple of poems, but I'm really proud of the forward. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we don't have time to talk about all of those that's things, but but we have a lot to look out for from Peter J. Harris. Have and if mercy. you can just give us those dates for the run sure, of the sure, show the at the Matrix. Mm-hmm. Opening night, July 21. 22, 24, we're going to go Friday, Saturday, and Monday. Then the very next weekend, 28th, 29th, 31, and then the first weekend of August. And it's nine shows. We're going to swing it, sing it and swing it, and get married like Christmas, like Maya Angelou used to say. <laughs> and, of course, uh, only the turnout will dictate whether we can stick around a little bit more, a little bit longer. Well, we've been talking with Peter J. Harris today. He is the writer and director and all-around renaissance man involved with uh, the Johnson Chronicles Truth 
the truth and tall tales about my penis. This is Janice Littlejohn with Los Angeles Review of Books. And thanks, Peter, for coming my to pleasure, join us. My pleasure. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And if you like the show, leave us a review and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is Ernesto Oleano. Our researcher is Chloe Chap. Production assistance from William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, and Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who's no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 